our biggest issue is not going to be where energy comes from or what we're doing with global warming, in my opinion, or climate change. If we don't have water under control, then none of that is going to matter. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Bennett. And we're back. We are back. I remember when we first started this whole thing, I said, if we get 100 downloads, I'll consider it the greatest success of my career. Well, we did that. And you know what? We're starting season three? Yeah, I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. We've had 40 episodes released to date. Some had guests, some were us. We've kind of changed things up. We've evolved. We've had, here we are. We've had Billy Squire on like six times. We've eaten a lot of spam. Billy Squire has a disclaimer, listeners. Billy Squire does not know who we are. Well, actually, he probably has a restraining order against Dave. He probably does. And we decided in the offseason, big, big news, that uh, we are huge fans of the Puma brand. Oh, my gosh. I'm wearing Puma socks right now. I'm wearing Puma shoes. I'm wearing a Puma shirt. All right. So what do we got today, Kristen? Okay. Well, of those 40 episodes, two of our most popular episodes and most fun episodes and most informative and heartwarming and lovely episodes were Infrastructure Junkies Roundtables. And this is something we kind of came up with on the fly in season two. And you know the routine. Mm -hmm. We have two guests on and everybody brings a right away topic and a pop culture topic. And we just kind of discuss them. And first time we did it, it was Carrie Lynn Hirsch and Ross Green. And the second time we did it, it was Cindy Welpley and Kobe Godwin. So who do you think it's going to be the third time? Oh, it's big. But first, new sponsor alert. Who is it? I'll tell you who it is. Pinnacle Consulting Management Group proudly supports the Infrastructure Junkies podcast. Pinnacle is well-versed in turnkey project management. They'll see your project through from the very beginning all the way through completion with their professional staff. Thanks, Pinnacle. Thank you, Pinnacle. All right, folks, this is Infrastructure Junkies Roundtable Part 3D, like part trace, tres, dre, tre, trois. Okay, that, I think they get the picture, Dave. I want, to, I want to do it in all languages, just in case we have foreign I think listeners. you covered all the languages. I think that was it. Yep, good job. Let's move on. Okay. Okay, listen up. This is crazy. So we decided that we wanted to kick off season three with an IJ roundtable, and we decided to make a list of like our dream team of who we would want on this episode. And that list had two people on it. That's right. It had two people on it. And we're like, this is who we want. That's it. And guess what? They said yes. They said yes. And we had to push back the start of this season just a hair so that we could make sure that this was our season premiere. Today, we have Lisa Harrison, SRWA, RW. U-R-A-C, R-A-C, N-A-C, and she's the owner-president of Pinnacle Consulting Management Group. Since 1991, Lisa has provided training, program management, and or turnkey services under the Uniform Relocation Act to a variety of government agencies around the United States. In addition, Lisa is a master facilitator for the International Right-of-Way Association, specializing in Uniform Act training and course development. 
Lisa served as the international president of IRWA from 2013 to 2014 and received the organization's highest honor, the Frank C. Balfour Professional of the Year in 2005 for contributions to industry education. Lisa was the recipient of the Louise L. and Y.T. Lum Award from the Right-of-Way International Education Foundation for 2019. Also joining us is my friend, Marcus Boyd. Marcus Boyd is a vice president and partial owner of Pinnacle Consulting Management Group, Inc. Marcus has been in the right-of-way business since 2005. He earned his RWRAC in 2009, the prestigious SRWA designation in 2011, and the RW Negotiation and Acquisition Certification in 2017. Marcus has business marketing and management degrees from Texas Tech University, guns up, and is a licensed Texas real estate broker. Marcus currently serves as Region 2 Secretary and Treasurer for the International Right-of-Way Association and recently served as the North Texas Chapter 36 IRWA International Director, Chapter President, Vice President, Secretary, Membership Chairperson, and Professional Development Committee Chairperson. Marcus is extremely blessed to be able to enjoy spending time with his wife, his son, and his two daughters. Mr. Boyd, welcome to Infrastructure Junkies. Good morning. Glad to be here. Glad to be invited. Thank you. And Lisa, we're glad to have you on too. Yeah, we'll see if you still believe that an hour from now. But good morning. <laughs> good, good morning. morning. We'll, we'll see what's discussed. We're very excited to have both of you on. Thanks for taking your time. And thank you for making arrangements in your busy schedule to join us. Are we ready? I, I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. Who's first? All right. You are. Since oh, you goodness. opened your mouth, you're going to go Dang first. It. So we're going to start with a substantive right-of-way topic followed by pop culture and just keep alternating until we're done. Okay. Are y'all ready for my topic? My topic is something I don't do as much as the rest of you probably because I'm a relocation gal. Pretty much that's my, I'm a one-trick pony with relocation. And I want to talk about negotiations. Okay. And the reason I want to talk about this is we had a wonderful listener message us and say, you have got to get Chris Voss on. He talks about negotiations. And we're like, oh, that's cool. Well, apparently he has a speaking fee of like a million dollars or something. So we're not probably going to have Chris Voss on the show, but he wrote a book called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depends on It. And he was a high stakes like FBI negotiator. And so I looked at some of his stuff and Dave and I have talked about this a little bit, like the concept of negotiating as it exists for us in our world, representing condemning authorities. So a lot of things that I've read about on the internet about negotiating are about winning and get making sure your interests are covered and making sure that you've got your interest at heart and that you're winning. And I don't think that's accurate. Like, is it does it behoove us to read books by Chris Voss where he says things like, don't say anything that doesn't ultimately benefit you? Marcus, when you're out there like negotiating with a landowner, are you trying to benefit you? I'd say absolutely not in that sense. The way I take it is I'm an advocate for both sides. I'm the middle person. I'm trying to get to an amicable agreement, if at all possible. And I'm also a property owner, so I know what it's like to own property. I know what it's like to work hard for, for something that I earned and that I bought. And I always tell property owners that, hey, I understand where you're at. I'm a property owner just like you. And you have rights. And you have legal rights. And I want to make sure you're aware of all those legal rights. So I'm strictly, I take it from the viewpoint of being a middleman, being on both sides. Yes, I'm hired by the condemning authority, but at the same time, I'm trying to get it to where the landowner is treated fairly as well as the condemning authority. Well said. That's very, well, that's great. I think somehow we got 
the concept of negotiating kind of got hijacked. And I looked up the Merriam-Webster definition of to negotiate, and it means this, to confer with another so as to arrive at the settlement of some matter. Don't we negotiate every... I negotiated with my kids this morning. I think I've negotiated with you guys already today. If it's conferring with others to arrive at the settlement of some matter. But I think at some point, the term negotiation got hijacked by like more for me. It's all me, money. And it's, I don't think that's what we do. Anyway, I just, what do you think, Dave? Well, I have very strong opinions on this, but I want to hear from Lisa first because she's got many years of experience on this in this field. Well, I think that in our situation, we've got to look at what we're hired to do. And what we're hired to do is uphold the constitution as it relates to negotiation. And so I think that when you have rules around what negotiation looks like, when you have an operational definition, if you will, of what negotiation means to a specific client, or for in our case, the constitution says good faith. You've got to do this in good faith. And good faith to me is not, I have to win and you have to alternately lose or we both have to win in some weird way. And so I think you got to know what definition we're talking about with negotiation to really be able to know what advice to get. And do you think that maybe our, as all of us represent condemning authorities primarily, if not exclusively, do you think that our definition and relationship with the word negotiation might differ from people representing the other side? Yes, absolutely. But again, depending on the client, right? Right. If the client's negotiation tactic is you have a limited amount of time, make your decision, get back to us and you have to justify it and you've got a one-time shot or this is, we'll go back and forth two or three times, but there's limitations to the concept. If one is like that and the other one is not, then you're going to have a different answer to that question. Exactly. And, and I will tell you that this is, one of the, if not the most frustrating part about my participation in the right-of-way industry as an attorney. Once the matter gets to me, everything's broken down. Hopefully, I never see a file. I only see a file if A, there's a cloud on title, or B, the two sides can't agree on just compensation. But my philosophy since I started doing eminent domain was that my job is not to get the best deal for the agency. And I'm very open about that, and, and it's never cost me a client. My clients like that. I'm not out to get the best deal. I'm out to hit the bullseye. My job is to get it right and make sure that the landowner gets just compensation and not a penny more, not a penny less. Now, here's what happens, though. The landowner attorneys don't share that philosophy. They're not out to hit any bullseye because they make their money by dividing by three. And so their job is to get it way up here to get as much money to come in with an appraisal, which pushes the envelope as far as possible. And I'm starting at the bullseye. I'm not starting in the seller. I'm starting at the bullseye. If we negotiate by the time it gets to me, we're going to wind up way above what I believe to be just compensation. And if we go to mediation, the mediator is going to look at me and be pounding on me and pounding on me. And you've got to give them more money than that. You tell your client to give them more money than that. So this is a very strange thing. If I represent you in an automobile accident as a defendant, I'm going to start as low as I possibly can and try to wind up somewhere in the middle at a fair place. But I start as a, at a fair place in this industry. It's very strange from where I sit. Well, and I, this is something that I deal with all the time as a relocation consultant because Lisa and Marcus, you guys both know this. We're not trying to save agency dollars. We're not trying to get 
displacees more than they're eligible for. At least I think the first time I ever heard this phrase was from you that we're trying to get every dollar due to a displacee, but not a penny more. There is no room for negotiation. There is none. And I, I often encounter individuals working on the other side of things that think there's room for negotiation and relocation. And I'm sorry, but there is not. So, well, I'm going to push back on that, Kristen. Just to your point a minute Uh ago, you said earlier that by definition, everything is a negotiation. Well, I don't think that in relocation, the dollars are negotiable because it's actual, reasonable, and necessary, but the interpretation is negotiable. Lisa, bringing it. You're so right. This is right. And don't you also are the person that taught me first that when you are doing relocation, it's not just that you go, okay, this is eligible or this is not, but you have to tell the story. You have to tell the story. And that is a negotiation, isn't it? Yes. Lisa, bringing it early in the morning on a Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. This this feels like a good time for me to get off my soapbox because I kind of get on a soapbox when we talk about these things. So let's lighten it up. Marcus, what do you want to talk about? What's on your mind today that's outside of right away? Well, I was thinking long and hard about it. And typically I talk about sports, but I didn't want to talk about sports this time. I want to talk about becoming a vegetarian. And a lot of people ask me, how in the world did you become a vegetarian? And there's no way in the world that I can become a vegetarian. And I am a living testimony that after eating meat and ribs and burgers and chicken and turkey and hot dogs and any other kind of meat for 36 years of life, if I can do it, you can do it. And actually, um, I really want to talk about this because there's no way in the world Lisa would become a vegetarian. So, <laughs> so, so I, wanted her, I wanted her to hear this from me as well. What triggered me was watching What the Health. And that was a documentary done on Netflix. And it was an amazing documentary. And not that all documentaries are 100% factual or, or correct, but it is what triggered my vegetarianism. I started off as a trial vegetarian because my wife was a vegetarian first for nine months before I was. And then I kind of eased my way into it. And watching that documentary kind of just took me over the cliff. There's so many medical studies, so many environmental studies that have been done that talk about vegetarianism. I can go on and on about it, but what do you guys think about vegetarianism or could you do, could you guys do it? Funny you should ask. So let me get something out on the table. How long have you been a vegetarian? It's been four years. Four years. Okay. So this is not a new fad. This isn't something. (laughs) He's like two weeks. I love it. It's great. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll chime in. I will say, Marcus, I think the first time I realized that you were a vegetarian, we were at lunch for some IRWA something. And I, I think you mentioned it and I was really surprised. I don't know why I was surprised, but I was. And I will say a lot of times at a restaurant or at a banquet, when there's a vegetarian option, I'll order it because I think it's usually really tasty and I like it. But I'm kind of a keto gal. So all those things you listed that you don't eat anymore, I'm like, that was breakfast, dinner, lunch, yesterday, yeah, tonight, I'm going to eat a burger tomorrow. Yeah. So I am, I, I consume way more probably meat than I should. I admire your vegetarianism. And I don't know, I think that's a, I think that's a good way to go. But yes, I was surprised the first time I, I realized that you were a vegetarian. Well, let me ask you this. Is it, uh, and I think I know the answer based on your intro, is this for health reasons or humanitarian reasons or... What? A little bit of both. First off, it was for health reasons, just because us as humans, our flesh is, is just so we we cave into our flesh needs. And I wanted to prove myself that I could do it. So first and foremost, I wanted to, to show myself I have the audacity and the nerve and the power, willpower to not eat meat. So that's how it started. And then I read all the articles about heart disease and cancer and, and what meat leads to. 
So of course, ultimately, that's another reason. But there is another reason that kind of feeds into our sector, the transportation sector, in that I'm going to read, raising animals for food produces more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation sector. What? So what, is, I, what? Oh, absolutely. It's cow mm, passing gas, to put it lightly. <sighs> okay. Oh um, my goodness. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Raising animals for food produces more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation sector. So as we need to adhere and support the need for humans to eat meat, all this taking down the forest and making fields for animals to graze and to raise up more and more animals as the population grows, more and more meat, more and more meat. It's more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation sector. Boom, Lisa, in your face. Well, there's an easy fix to this. All we have to do <clears throat> is distribute gas X to all the cattle farms. See? <laughs> and we can keep eating meat. That, I didn't think about that. So that is a great <laughs> answer. It's a great tonight. plan. Lisa? You, I believe I remember that you are not a big fan of green things to eat. Is green this things are poison. Let's <laughs> be clear. That I have one word that basically sums up my entire feelings about being a vegetarian versus not. And that is bacon. That's it. That's all I got. Bacon. That's hey, it. Lisa, the most overrated bacon. substance on the face of the planet is bacon. True story. I'm sorry. We can no longer be friends. I'm, I'm hanging up. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Lisa. <laughs> okay. Ne yes. Next week on Infrastructure Junkies, it's just Marcus Boyle. <laughs> hey, well, Marcus, uh, I commend you. That's really, it's impressive. Well, before we leave the topic, since Lisa brought up bacon, there is another quote from the documentary. Of course that says, there is. <laughs> Dead hogs are processed into feed and, back, and fed back to the hogs. So okay. you love bacon so much, they eat their own dead selves. They so like it go. too. They yeah. like bacon too, Marcus. <laughs> I think you're making it's Lisa's point for her. <laughs> yes. Okay. That was a good one. I mm, The pressure's on me. The pressure's on me to come up with something good. Lisa, a substantive right-of-way topic. What you got? Well, as a relocation person and somebody that's been doing this for a long time and a person that that I consider myself an activist in human rights and even the client in spite of the conversation that we just had and, and things like that. My daughter, who's also like that, has always questioned me about how can you do what you do that basically paves everything and justify that based on your personal feelings. And relocation, oddly enough, particularly residential relocation, is part of the reason because I feel like we make a difference in a lot of people's lives is projects do not generally go through Beverly Hills. They generally go through a much more impoverished or at least lower end of the spectrum, financial spectrum. And, and so you see a lot of things. And if you can make a difference and make a change, it's a big deal. But the flip side of that is what, and I know that throughout my career, I've made a lot of jokes about that. And there are things that are so extraordinary, they're fun to talk about. But I also want to just make the point that they're also people's lives and there's reasons why they're going through that stuff. So the horror stories, let's start with the fun part. I'm going to throw it back to Kristen and then I'll tell you mine. The most crazy or horrible or relocation situation you've walked into. 
Okay, as far as someone's like where they're living, their their situation? No, just it's like, oh my gosh, I've never thought about that. I've never seen that. Holy cow, that's craziness. Okay. Well, this was not that long ago. And it was a veteran who was living in an efficiency sort of apartment. And he had really serious mental issues and no working plumbing. So that probably was But the flip side at the end of it, what happened at the end of it? He was in a safe place and, and comfortable and had access to services for his mental issues. And you know what? See, there you go. He was forgotten. And that's a perfect example. Yeah. And he was forgotten. He was not, society had cast him aside. His family had cast him aside. He was forgotten. And I, it was one, as relocation people, we have to walk into horrendous situations and sometimes go into places where it's like unsafe to even exist in the room with them. And that was one of those where I was like, "I, I think I might literally pass away if I stay in this home for another second. It was really bad. Yeah. So that, and you know what? I'm so glad you brought this up because I think with residential relocation, a majority of the time at the end of it, they are in a vastly better situation. And I'm going to, I know that's a big statement. I'm going to say it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's only because they don't build highways through rich neighborhoods, right? Yeah. If they did, are they really going to put them in a better situation? No. And that's really the topic of maybe five or six podcasts, the placement (laughs) of interstates and routing of pipelines and whatnot. We've seen some presentations on that. So I guess what you're saying, Lisa, is, hey, there have been some policy decisions made in the past, which are we're only now beginning to discuss, but at least there's a silver lining through the relocation agent. Well, see, I actually think about what you're, the topic you're talking about though, Dave, and I want to ask you to look at it from a little bit of a different perspective. Just to the point that Kristen just made with her example, had we avoided going into economically troubled situations, we would not have made the difference in a lot of those people's lives. Whereas if you go through Beverly Hills, you're just building a road and you're not making a difference. And and I'm not talking about gentrification here. I'm talking about being able to provide services for people and getting them out of an example. So let me just tell you the worst one. And I'm saying this because at the time, it was a great story to tell at the cooler, and it's still a great story to tell. But I also understand the sadness about it. But I walked into a relocation, and there was a single chair and a picture of Captain Kirk on the wall. And that was the furnishings. Everything else was four feet, and I'm not exaggerating, of Burger King sacks. What? Uh, yeah. Yes. The room was filled and it, literally nothing except for Burger King sacks. And you walk in and it had a smell, let's just say. I bet. And the woman was sitting in her chair by her picture of the captain. And then I realized that these sacks were moving like no, waves no, on no. the ocean. No, no. Just, no. they're just, <laughs> I mean, literally. And I thought, wow. Am I having a flashback or is this actually happening? And then you realize that it's filled with mice and rats. And when we demolished the building, because it was also part of our contract and I was out there, it was like a scene from the movie Ben. Now, 
that's probably Kristen before your time, but Dave, the movie Ben and literally the number of creatures, but that was the living, that was the living condition. And uh, we've seen so much like that, literally four feet all Burger King sacks. But then that woman ended up living in a three bedroom brick house with her mother and brother who were the next door neighbors and also displacees where the mother could give her the care she needed and changed that condition, which actually ended up changing her health. And I still get Christmas cards from them today. And that was 25 years ago. Lisa, that is such a great example of what we do. And I want to say, when I go into one of those places, when you walk in and it's a hoarder or it's just really unsanitary living conditions or it's a sad story, it's an opportunity to help somebody. We all know we're not going to go out there and find them a comparable that's equally unsanitary and unsavory. They are absolutely, at the end of it, at least going to have the opportunity to be in a better situation. I remember early on in my career, I'd be like, ugh, I don't want to go deal with this. And now I'm like, okay, good. This person has the opportunity to turn it around because we're here. Marcus, any thoughts on this? Yes, I've had my share of some very nasty places going into, but ultimately it's it's our job. In the end, especially with relocation, aside from a displacee passing away, most relocations end up on a positive note. Or if you have that just irate displacee that doesn't talk to you and, and moves on and you never get to help or give any money to, that's a bad ending. But for the most part, they end in positive notes. And I love what I do because of that. In its 25 years as a turnkey right-of-way firm, Pinnacle Consulting Management Group, Inc. has continued to evolve from the lessons learned from clients, industry colleagues, staff, and the affected stakeholders. Pinnacle is focused on creating an environment that attracts and supports a diverse, enthusiastic, and quality-driven staff, which leads to a better product and a greater level of service. Whether the job is one parcel or 501 parcels, Pinnacle has the experience, knowledge, and staffing capability to get the job done by providing exceptional service in a professional, cost-effective, and timely manner. Think about Pinnacle first. Okay, pretty good so far. Now we're going to go to pop culture, and I think it's my turn. Oh, Are you ready for this? Are we going to talk about Billy Squire? No, we're not. Would you like to? No. Okay, so here's what I want to talk about. This is actually kind of fascinating to me. I want to talk about reading. And I mean, reading for pleasure, not reading the contents of whatever you're eating or a text or the Uniform Relocation Act, reading for pleasure. And throughout my life, I've always been a very avid reader. There were years where I couldn't go to sleep unless I was reading something first. I'd finish a book and have to search the entire house, go to the attic, or I wouldn't be able to go to sleep if I didn't find something. But Here's what I've noticed. Like, I read a great book by like Titan about John D. Rockefeller, and I'll tell somebody, hey, you've got to read this book. It'll change your life. He was such an incredible person, even though he was a robber baron. And some people will say, well, I don't really read. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't read? Are you, do you just game all the time? How do you not read? And people who read, they always say it's, it, it helps develop you. And they, the, the story when we were kids is if, if you want to be successful, you need to read. As I've begun paying attention, I've realized that those who read avidly and those who don't, there's really, I haven't discerned any sort of distinction between level of intelligence, success, socioeconomic level. I know people who don't read who make a lot of money. I know people who don't read who are 10 times smarter than I'll ever be. And I know people who read avidly that I think are dumb as a brick. 
just putting it out there. So just curious, like, is it just me? Am I the only one who wants to read or what do you do it for? You, hold on. Before yep. we go to Marcus and Lisa, I got to say, I've never thought about that because yes, we've always been encouraged to read and I'm usually a pretty avid reader myself, but you would think in that case, you'd walk around and be like, oh, that guy doesn't read, obviously. But you're right. You can't just talk to somebody and tell whether or no. not they're readers. No, you can't. What do you think? Let's go to Lisa first. What do you think, Lisa? First of all, want to another pushback is that I do read the Uniform Act for pleasure. Thank you very much, Dave. What? <laughs> oh, my God. Lisa, not- there's some things which weren't meant to be said out loud, and that might be one. <laughs> oh, it's a fact, though. It's true. I love it. I love to find something I haven't realized or haven't thought about that way before. It's a fun game. And I can tell you, I bet you Lee Hamry would agree with me, even if Kristen does not. Uh, Lee Hamry would and, absolutely agree with you. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I actually love to read, but my problem is that I feel guilty reading anymore. I was an avid reader for my entire life and love it. But I got to the point where I could only read if I was on an airplane and I told myself that no electronics, no work would take place on an airplane. And that was the only time I read because every other time I feel like there's something else I should be doing. It almost makes me feel guilty. So I can't concentrate and enjoy it the way that I should. Question. What's the last book you read? Start to finish. Do you know? Becoming by Michelle Obama. Okay. Nice. That was a good one, wasn't it? It was great. And I didn't read it when it first came out for the points that I just made. Right. But now that Marcus and Aaron are around and they're doing all the heavy lifting, I've made more time to some more time to do that. So it hasn't been that long ago that I read it. But yeah, it was great. Marcus, what do you say about reading? Well, I grew up not liking to read whatsoever. Whatsoever. I don't believe, I think I've read about two entire books my entire life Yeah, as far as from front to back. But now for the last five years, I love reading magazines. I love reading articles, Bloomberg, Business Week, different articles that come out online. But books, I, I just don't, I don't even like holding a book in my hand. It just doesn't feel natural to me. And I would just rather not read. That's, that's just me. My daughter, who's now a, a junior in college, is the exact same way. When I was a kid, I always read and I always thought she would be the exact same way. I could never get her to read a book and she would never do it for fun. I mean, she's a smart kid. And that's kind of the point of this discussion is you realize that some people just don't like it for whatever reason. To me, I couldn't live without it. Sounds like Marcus couldn't live with it. (laughs) And this might be a good time to move on to the next topic. Let's do it. So next up is Marcus, you're up with your substantive right-of-way topic. Yes. So my topic is the lack of diversity in right-of-way. So Where I'm coming from with this is I have a limited geographical view of it. You know, I've mostly done work in Texas, done a little work in Arkansas, a little work in Oklahoma, very little in Virginia. So my view is from where I'm from, basically. And then also the taste I get at international conference, at the international events that I attend. And I've been to, I believe, seven or eight of them over the last 10 years of the IWA international conferences. So that's the taste of what I get on a right-of-way infrastructure scale. And then, of of course, here locally, I live in Dallas-Fort Worth, and we're a huge chapter, the largest chapter in the world, as we like to say now. That's right. So so that's the taste that I get from it. And from what I've seen, me being African-American and Hispanic, is that we lack diversity in our profession extremely. On a personal 
note, me personally, whenever I was the president of the chapter um, five years ago, we'd have a luncheon and there'd be 160 people there. And I would be the only African-American male in the entire room, one out of 160. And so that's pretty disheartening. In Dallas, Texas, where the minority population is huge with both Hispanic and African-American, and it was extremely disheartening. So since then, you know, I've got a taste of the national level and going to the conferences and even, even the representation at conferences where we have a thousand people, it just lacks diversity. Most of the people there are Caucasian. There, there are plenty of women now, but there are not now. a lot of, <laughs> yes, now, <laughs> but there are not a lot of minorities. And I know at these conferences, a lot of different levels of people attend, whether it be owners of companies or, or project managers. Sometimes it's the lower staff, just depending on what companies want to bring. But even at these conferences, it's not very well represented with diversity. And then just a few stats beyond that. You know, I had to do a little research being on the diversity task force. We've had 67 presidents of the RWA and not one minority that I'm aware of. What? 10 have been women. So we've had 10 women but not one out of 67 presidents of the RWA have been minority. Gosh. So that's pretty pretty disheartening. And then even now, looking at the website, and, and I do see your lovely face on there, Mr. Arnold, on the RWA website. It's cheesy um, looking, isn't it? Looks like it came from Anchorman. <laughs> it looks good, man. It looks good. Oh, your hair looks perfect, by the way. But <laughs> Strong. I got a strong hair game in that picture. <laughs> on there, there's 17 leaders of the organization. And Matt Harris, my good friend Matt Harris, he's on there, African-American. Mississippi, he's on there. And I don't believe anyone else is minority. I could be wrong. I don't know. But just on the leadership level and what I've seen represented at conferences and even in my own chapter, just the lack of diversity is is just what I want to bring to the forefront and discuss today. Yeah. And I know Kristen has an important question here, but I want to make sure I understand this. Is your perspective that our industry is not diverse enough and therefore it should be? because it should reflect the community that we live in? Or I've heard this argument made, do we as right-of-way professionals have some sort of legal or moral obligation to present representatives to landowners who have the same perspective? I mean, if you're going through an African-American community or Hispanic community, is there some sort of obligation to have right-of-way agents who, who have the same background and perspective? I don't know if it's an obligation, but it absolutely does help. Not 100% of the time, but it absolutely does help to have someone that may look like them. But obligation, I don't think it should be an absolute obligation, but it absolutely does help. We encounter all different kinds of people in our profession. I mean, we go through all different kinds of neighborhoods, businesses. We affect any and everybody. It doesn't. The race is not important when it comes to the path of where infrastructure goes through. So having different people represent us as companies on the private sector and on the public sector is absolutely necessary to touch base with these people that we're affecting. But obligation that you must, I would say no, which kind of sounds kind of productive what I'm saying, but it absolutely helps and it should be a, a focus of especially private companies, in my opinion. I want to ask a question about that, though, because I would be careful. I believe there should be representation. Absolutely. I would believe that any group should reflect the population at large. But I would be careful of assigning agents to situations based on ethnicity, because where do you draw the line? And isn't that 
sort of a profiling in some weird way, meaning I think that could actually result in a lot of harm. I think having, there's a part about that that bothers me. I, I can't quite articulate what I mean here, but it, there's a concern about taking that approach. I understand that. And I, I think I know exactly what you're saying. And I, I have a couple of questions about this topic as well. Lisa, you said something a minute ago about there are, there's plenty of women, in, or Marcus said there's plenty of, of women in right-of-way. And you said, yeah, now. And yeah, there have been huge strides taken. Women are much more prevalent in this industry now than they were even when I started in this industry about 15 years ago. I remember thinking I had jumped into a good old boys club in oil and gas in Texas uh, in the early 2000s. So huge strides have been made. So my question for any of us, for all of us, is number one, with the lack of diversity, do you think, Marcus, that in any way it's getting better at all? And if not, or if so, I think all of us on this call would agree with your point, Marcus, that there is an extreme lack of diversity within this industry. What do we do about that? What steps can be taken by organizations within the industry, individuals, companies? What do we do to make this better? And for me, a simple answer is hire minorities, point blank, period. That's just one simple answer is hire minorities. And I've made an effort to hire minorities. I've, and not that I have them all counted, but at least 25 have been hired under my tutelage, under my watch here at Pinnacle, at least 25. And here in Texas, more than 50% of our staff is minority. So hire minorities and me being part of a private company and into ownership and having some hiring power with Lisa's backing is I get to hire who I want. And I hire minorities, and but I also hire all different kinds of people because we must be diverse. And I, I really love that within our, our company, but hire minorities. Okay. You heard it here, infrastructure junkies, hire minorities. And for the record, Marcus, I'm really happy you brought this topic to the forefront. I agree with you. The parting observation I will have is I remember it's been 10, 20 years ago, there was a cover of Newsweek or Time where they made the revelation that by the year 2040, Caucasians would be the minority in the United States. And so careful with that statement of hiring minorities. You might be hiring a bunch of white people here in a couple of years. <laughs> I think we're a ways from that at the moment. Okay. Kristen, pop culture. Oh my gosh. Everybody buckle up. We're going to talk about the Texas Tech Red Raiders basketball program. Oh boy. Yeah. Hey, you know what, Mr. UVA, they still like to ride on that wave from 2019 when they beat us in the national championship. It's not. That not. was a national championship, by the way. How many do you have in basketball? Well, just hold on. We're not talking I about. Maybe not, in fencing you okay. have one. Okay, enough. Before we get into the basketball, I do want to say that this is something that Marcus and I have in common. We both went to Texas Tech University at the same time and we did not know each other. But fun fact, at the mall in Lubbock, I worked at Dillard's and just down the halls in the mall, Marcus worked at Hat World. So we we didn't know each other, but we probably were in the food court at the same time and cheering on our Red Raiders in the same years. So Marcus played football at Texas Tech and his wife played basketball at Texas Tech. And wow. very, yeah, talented family right. over there. Anyway, Marcus, I want and, to talk about and this. And I Go was ahead. doing a project. I was doing a project in Lubbock while you guys were in college. Did you go eat at Chick-fil-A in the mall or anything? Because maybe we were all there at the <laughs> same time. So... Anyway, since there's a couple of Red Raiders on this call, I just, I kind of wanted to talk about it. So for those of you that don't know, Texas Tech is killing it this season so far. In basketball, yes, they are. I don't need any disclaimers from you, sir. In basketball and really in everything. But yes, basketball has been so much fun to watch this year. I love our team. Last year, our coach, Chris Beard, well, 
he became a traitorous monster and he left to go to the University of Texas, okay? And so everybody was like, well, that's it. That was fun for a minute to have a good basketball team. And then here comes Mark Adams, who was promoted to the head coach. And we've had a phenomenal season. I believe that we are undefeated at home. We're like a million and zero at home. Are we like 14 and 0 at home or something? We're ranked in the top 10, which is scary. I don't like to be in the top 10. It sets us up for failure. But I just, I've, I have never had so much fun watching basketball ever. And I don't know if it's the new energy with the new coach. I don't know if it's that our fans are bonkers and like the home games are insane, but I have had a blast watching this team. As a fan from afar, by proxy of Texas Tech basketball, I, I think he left out one of the most significant factors was Chris Beard left. And then on his coattails, you lost five or maybe six mm-hmm. of your top players. Sure did. That was la- That was just last year. That wasn't five years ago. Yeah. And now you're in the top. You lost five of the best players on the team, and now you're back in the top 10. What happened? And and when we were going on our run and beating like these top schools, like we beat Baylor, who was number one, we were down our at the time our top scorer. I don't know if he still is, Terrence Shannon. He was out, injured. So it's just been a kind of amazing a miraculous season for the Texas Tech Red Raiders. Marcus, what do you say? Absolutely. I absolutely love watching my Red Raiders be successful in basketball. I wish they could be a little bit more successful in football, but hopefully that'll change with the new coach. But we're going to stick to basketball. And yes, they're number nine in the nation right now. We did just take a loss to Oklahoma. I don't even know if Lisa knows that or she would mention it, but we did just lose Oklahoma on the road. But Hey, it's coaching and defense. That defense that they coach at Texas Tech is amazing. And to be in the top three, top five of defense year after year, it's a culture. And defense wins championships. So that's right. I, I definitely attest to the defense. Offense, of course, you got to score points to win. But that coaching staff, what they have going on there is amazing. And I did have a chance to take my kids to Lubbock the week of Thanksgiving. We got to see the game against um, Omaha. Uh, oh. We were there at the United Spirit Arena. And they they kicked their butt and won by a whole lot, by like 40 points. So my kids did get to witness it this year. But yes, kudos to Texas Tech men's basketball for sure. Okay, I want to say one more thing. I know we probably need to move on, but I do want to say with the UT thing, so Texas played Tech at home at in Lubbock. And if you saw that game, or if you didn't, I'll just tell you, it was like watching a national championship game. The crowd was insane. It was so much fun. Of course, Texas Tech won. Now, here's what's going to happen next. We're going to go play Texas in Austin, and a little something happened on Twitter where somebody leaked the University of Texas like season ticket holder code to buy single tickets, and the Texas Tech fans went bonkers and basically bought out all the single tickets. So that game in Austin is going to feel like a Texas Tech home game, and I can't wait. It's going to be a blast. So, Lisa, your Sooners are fresh off a victory of Texas Tech. Any Boomer Sooner. Okay. Hey, Marcus, <laughs> before we move off of this, I do want to know who your favorite player on the team is right now. Right now, that is a good one. I would say Kevin McCullough Jr. Oh, yeah. I love him. I'm, I'm a big fan of Adonis Arms. I, I just love watching him play. So... Thank you, guys. Go Raiders. Raider power. Guns up. All right. All right. Guns up. And by the way, of course, this episode is going to be released later. But today, Texas Tech plays at 4 p.m., exact same time the Virginia Cavaliers are playing. So we'll have a fight over the remote. We'll be watching the Red Raiders. Okay. Substantive topic. And this is a hot one. And, And this just recently came to my attention because our country's been through such troubling times lately. My solution for that was just to stick my head in the sand and not pay attention to anything. But once I pulled my head out of the sand, I realized that there is just this huge push, this huge momentum to go green. And 
oil and gas and fossil fuels are evil and there's this movement against the oil and gas industry and they're having trouble getting pipelines built. They want electrical cars. They want electrical everything else. I got it. I got it. But I have a couple of questions about that. Number one, we don't have the infrastructure to go green. Number two, we don't really have the technology to go green because we, do, we haven't invented a battery yet, which will hold energy for an indefinite period of time. And then number three, doesn't almost all energy come back to fossil fuels? Like the, the electricity you're putting in your Tesla, wasn't that on some level created by burning coal or natural gas or something like that? I think this is a great idea in concept. But it seems to me if we want to save the planet, we really ought to be distributing gas X to cow farms. <laughs> and Agreed. we come full circle. <laughs> all right. What do you all think about that? I think it's wonderful in concept and I'm all for it. But we don't have the charging stations across the country. Uh, what are we going to do? Just continue to build wind turbines. We can't store the energy yet. Bill Gates may have other ideas, but we're not there yet. I believe, though, that You've got to work towards something. You don't want to lose oil and gas jobs if you're not creating jobs that will accommodate the same people that have those skills. Otherwise, you're creating a, a damage when you're trying to do something positive. So I think building the infrastructure, we may not be there where we want to be, but you have to start somewhere and you have to work towards it. And we have the opportunity to create an unbelievable amount of jobs for people that may lose them in other sectors by building the infrastructure for charging stations and doing all that. I think we just tend to put the car, the car in this case, <laughs> before the horse. But I think you have to start somewhere. Marcus? Definitely a, a tough topic. And, and with, like I said, I read Bloomberg Business Week and a lot of it is pointing to going green and whatnot. I know solar, in my mind, I think solar is such a huge deal because the sun reflects everywhere, <laughs> pretty much. The sun is hits at all different angles, hits all different houses, hits all different buildings. So the articles I've been reading are people buying um, older buildings or older apartments or older warehouses and just attaching solar to them like crazy. And I don't, I'm not a solar expert by any means. I don't know how much gigawatts uh, they produce or how much you can retain from an hour. I don't know a lot about it, but I do know that the sun hits in a lot of different areas and it comes up every day as of right now until the environment keeps on getting worse. And the sun is going to be a huge player in the future, but you're right. The technology has to get there in order to capture that energy for houses and for businesses and whatnot. But going green, is, it has to happen because the population is not decreasing by any means. No. The population is increasing and we got to do something. Well, let me ask you this. Nobody's going to like this, but I'm going to throw it out there. Isn't the answer nuclear energy? Isn't that really the answer to this? Oh, boy. Yeah, oh, boy is right. If you were watching the Olympics and you look at their nuclear reactor situation <laughs> right next to the ski jump, you might, you might not like that. No, I, I, I don't think the answer is yes. Lisa, you remember, you and I are old enough to remember this. Kristen and Marcus were literally in diapers, but you remember Three Mile Island and you the bet. horror of that. And I remember it being on the front page of Time and Newsweek. And then Chernobyl in 86 Chernobyl, or bet. 88, which was even worse. 
absolutely terrifying stuff, but hasn't our technology come further than that? Is it, can this be, it's certainly clean energy except for the waste. It's clean and it, it's powerful like fossil fuels. And it's not relying on the sun shining or the wind blowing. Well, but to me, this gets back to the whole green in general. There's, it's where to start. The waste of all the things that we do is actually our biggest issue is not going to be where energy comes from or what we're doing with global warming, in my opinion, or climate change. In that respect, if we don't have water under control, then none of that is going to matter. And so all the waste that we create that's affecting our water to me is the primary issue and it doesn't get nearly enough conversation. But we, particularly Western nations, we waste more water where most of the population gets less than a gallon a day for all of their needs. And we flush more than that every time we take a trip to the John. Right. Uh, So to me, all of the other stuff, is second, you've got to find the biggest fire and put that out first and make sure you're not creating unintended consequences. And I think nuclear energy and the waste of that affects things in a way that the waste of all of the things that we do affect the water. And I think that's the bigger issue in my mind. Great observation. And I think that's a perfect observation to leave on. And we're going to go to the last pop culture topic. Why don't you just segue right on into that, Lisa? Oh, my. Okay. I say I don't have time to read because I have I feel guilty about it. But there are some things to me that are worth the guilt. And some of that is trash TV. And <laughs> like, like Honey Boo Boo or what? Oh, no. Although I have to say, I, in hotel rooms, when you're on the road, sometimes Honey Boo Boo is the best you've got. And so I have to say I have watched it. Um, no. Okay. My worst... My worst one straight up is Married at First Sight. Oh, that that's a great show. I, I don't know what that means. It, it is a show where these, quote, experts match people that do this series of what do you like, what do you not like? And they meet at the altar and they have to stay married for about eight weeks while they film them go through this process. And then at the end of eight weeks, they have to come together and each decide whether they want to stay together or not. <laughs> and it is so awful and awesome. It's at brilliant. The same, at the same time. I, I <laughs> and have, people stay together. They this do. The thing. I, have okay, a, I have a prediction that you like watched every minute of the Tiger King. You did. No, actually, I, I you did, did not too. Because, yeah, I did. <laughs> I did not. And here's why, because I know people that are connected to all of that stuff. So I knew enough about it. And Oklahoma already gets a bad rap because every person that is seen at the national level is in a wife beater t- saying, yeah, we just got hit by a tornado. And, oh, boomer sooner. Hey, touche though, touche. <laughs> Thank you. And, and I did not watch it for that reason. But Okay, are you telling me, Dave, that you don't watch any secret trash TV? Okay, okay. fair. I just got into one, and you're not going to believe what what it is. It's called like F1. It's about Formula One racing, and it's on Netflix. What? Yeah, but here's why this is so interesting, is I've never watched a Formula One race, and I don't know anything about it. And a friend mentioned this to me, and he's like, well, you should watch it. It's pretty cool, man. So I put it on, and next thing I knew, I was three episodes in. And I, I... couldn't believe it. That seems so off-brand for you. I know, but I, I don't like. I hate NASCAR, but Formula One, man, that's cool. Okay, 
Well, I want to say, first of all, Lisa, I watched the first two seasons of Married at First Sight. And they're not just experts. Remember, they're love experts. Yes, they're love course. experts. I think that show is fascinating and hilarious, and I love it. But I have to say, I have not watched a lot of TV lately. But if I am going to watch reality TV these days, I like to watch shows. This is pro- this is weird. I like to watch shows that make me feel like warm and cozy and safe in my house by comparison. So I'll watch, and my kids like this too. We'll watch like Naked and Afraid. And so you're like all cozy oh, and you're brother. jamming of course you're watching with naked like a and belly afraid. full of food and There's you're not anybody. dehydrated. You don't have bug bites all over your body. And you're like, oh, this is fascinating. And I feel so warm and cozy. And I'll watch like Deadliest Catch for the same reason. Or maybe like now I have been known to watch Hoarders or like prison reality shows. And I don't know why. There's something in me that it, it, it makes me feel comfortable and cozy when I'm watching people and they're naked and they're eating bugs. Marcus Boyd, back me up on this. Come on, help help me out. Help me out. Yeah, I, I'm not a reality show person whatsoever. The reality I see is watching my kids play basketball and sports. So, yeah, no reality shows for me. Uh, good for I you. I almost auditioned for one. I actually filled out the paperwork and went to the place and intended, yeah, I came really close to auditioning for Big Brother. No and way. Yeah, uh, be, but this was early on. So historically, about reality television, that once upon a time in a land far away, MTV had this show called Real World. I auditioned for it. I remember that. Yep. I, you I auditioned for, for the Real World at Texas well, Tech. See? And, and, but in the beginning, it was actually a great concept in that they brought people together that, so there were minorities, there were people from the LGBTQ plus community. There were a variety of, there was the urban kid and the also the country kid. And they put them into a situation in order to help them learn about each other. But then it evolved to how many fights can we have? How many hookups can we get? So in the beginning of Big Brother, my point, in the beginning, it was a strategic game. It, it had old, young, Good looking, not good looking, fat and skinny and all the in between. And I, the challenge of winning it under those circumstances, I wanted to, but Ashley was too young uh, for me to leave for three months. And so I talked myself out of it. I, I think it's fascinating that you brought up the real world because I think one of the, it was so innovative in that first season, which was in New York City. I watched it. I was a kid. I was a kid. And mm-hmm. I remember being fast. I learned a lot by watching it. And then I, I got really into, I would watch the real world, world every year. And then sometime like around the time that they went to Miami, it just became like a booze fest and a hookup fest. And I'm awful. like, we've lost it. We've lost the value yeah. of what, because I think it really was a, a very fascinating social experiment at the beginning. Okay. This has been a fun. This has been a blast. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. Uh, Lisa, Marcus, thank you both for coming on. Infrastructure Junkies, fascinating discussion as always. Yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you guys so much for making time to join us. And thank you for your fascinating topics. It was great. Okay, it was a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, I have to admit. (laughs) And thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm more than willing to come back on whenever you need some field time or someone to talk about vegetarianism or sports. Can't wait. Awesome. It's, It's on. Hi, this is Lisa Harrison, and you're listening to Infrastructure Junkies. My question to you is, do you think it's worse that I like the URA for reading pleasure or that I watch Married at First Sight? I need to know. This is Marcus Boyd, and you've been listening to the Infrastructure Junkies podcast. 
Go Tick! <laughs>